0: Did Bollywood liberalize India? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Namish Adya. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today our guest is Namish Adya. Namish is Associate Professor of Economics at Manhattanville College. He specializes in international economics and economic history and teaches courses on international trade, economics of developing countries, and intellectual history of capitalism. He's on the editorial board of Education About Asia and serves as a series editor of the Economic History Case Studies of Sage Publishers. Namish, welcome to The Curious Task.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: So in each episode, we ask a question and go wherever the answers take us. Today, our question is, did Bollywood liberalize India? I'm going to let you run with that one, and then we'll drill down a little further. So tell us Amish, did Bollywood
1: liberalize india well i don't I don't know if I can claim that Bollywood liberalized India, but I think Bollywood did reflect a lot of cultural changes that led to liberalisation in India, and uh, some of these cultural changes are a greater emphasis on uh Individuals, individuals, and uh, their desires, uh, 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 shedding of stigma around wealth and consumption, and uh, I think those, those, those are very evident in Bollywood films.
0: Before we get any further with Bollywood specifically, let, let's also get, get a bit of a backdrop about um, some post-World War II economic history in India. I think that's important for people to understand before we talk about Bollywood and how it reflects some cultural changes. So, um, you talk a bit about this in your paper, so I would, I would hope you could spend a few minutes on that here too. Um, there, there was sort of a a shift in economic thinking in India post-World War II. So could you trace that for us, especially where we go from a little more socialistic ideals to to more market liberalization? Then of course, we'll connect that back to Bollywood.
1: Right. So the beginning of the post-World War era is also when India got independence from, uh, British colonial rule and uh, It very deliberately adopted what it called a mixed economy Which was the middle path between capitalist and communist blocks that the world was dividing itself into And so even though the private sector was not abolished. It was greatly circumvented in its activities. So there were a lot of restrictions placed on uh, private enterprise uh, particularly uh, they needed a license to expand, to change their product mix, and this whole regime came to be known as the license raj, in which they had to apply for permission uh, to govern uh, to government uh, in order to to a lot of to make a lot of decisions that in market economies would be left to the discretion of the firm itself. This whole regime, as I said, was uh, called the license raj, and it is through the license raj that the government. Circumvented uh, or, or, or regulated the activities of the private sector, and uh, and and the idea was to 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 uh, to avoid the kind of class conflict that was uh, taking place in a lot of other places and the associated bloodshed, for example, in China. Uh, so, they didn't want a communist revolution, but they also wanted to make sure that the fruits of any economic growth would disproportionately benefit the the poor majority. Uh, and this was their way of doing that. And it kind of worked for a while, but then the licensed Raj became, uh, became a killer of economic growth. Uh, uh, the economy simply limped along at a rate of 1% or 2% uh, rate of economic growth. And that was not enough to lift the masses out of poverty. Uh, and so around 1980, 1990s, there was a rethinking of this entire strategy of a mixed economy. And, uh, th- th- and then the mixed change. Uh, towards allowing greater freedom of enterprise and markets and uh, capitalism, starting in the 1990s. So, so maybe a little bit more on on that change. So, I guess
0: this look this looked like um, the deconstruction of the licensing regime. There was a
1: more small businesses were allowed to flourish. Is that pretty much the idea? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, a major change was that uh, that uh, of course the license raj was abolished. Basically, the government said, you know, you can just burn your licenses. You don't need them anymore. There were restrictions on how big private sector firms could get, and those restrictions were abolished. There were restrictions on the industries in which private sector firms were allowed to enter, and those were abolished. Uh, foreign trade was greatly liberalized. Uh, that was one big, uh, big uh, change. And uh, yeah, yeah, uh, the tax system was rationalized, uh, and. Uh, and uh, there, there there continue to be uh, restrictions, uh, particularly in the agricultural sector. The agricultural sector is still still very much hardly uh, regulated. There has been no liberalization in that. Uh, and that's unfortunate because 70% of the population works in agriculture. Mm. So the liberalization has affected only about 30% of the workers
0: so I think that provides a great economic backdrop before, again, we jump right into Bollywood specifically. I'd like to talk about a little bit more of a cultural backdrop now, too. And I like how your paper, although eventually, of course, it talks about Bollywood, um, you also give a bit of um, a cultural taste for readers about India if they're not familiar with it. So um, one thing I was interested to learn about is that you noted that Throughout the same sort of timeline where there was economic change, attitudes around uh, wealth and the businessman all also changed. And if we go back to directly after post World War II, It seems that what I learned from your paper is that there was sort of a a distaste for the businessman and trade. And and this is deeply rooted in Indian social tradition, you were saying. So a lot of people uh, were not trusting and didn't really look upon business as a noble thing at all, or even a good thing in the 50s and 60s, it seemed especially.
1: I mean, the distaste for uh, businessmen, a lot of people attribute that to the Fabian socialist ideology that was uh, in vogue among uh, post-independence leaders. But uh, the distaste for businessmen goes even further back than that. Uh, the Hindu social system, for example, divides people uh, into castes, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, uh, and 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 you know, and businessmen don't figure very high in that caste system. They're not as bad as the untouchables, okay, who really bear the brunt of the caste system. But uh, you know, they're they're like kind of in in the hierarchy after. After scholars and religious leaders and warriors and and, and politicians, so yeah, uh, people, uh, especially the the scholars, the religious leaders, would consider businessmen to be of lower social standing than themselves. The warriors would consider businessmen to be of lower social standing than themselves. So, being a businessman. Uh, if your goal is to climb the social ladder, the social hierarchy, which was i mean in the caste system you really can't but if you were to then you know being a businessman is not something to aspire to so
0: as and as you're saying that although some people attribute this to socialist ideals, that wasn't just it it was also deeply yeah. embedded into the culture so it, essentially it's the idea that as you said, you're a step or two above the untouchables. If, if you have to work for a living to make money and profit, that's looked down upon in, in the class system of that sort, right? Is that you don't yeah. have a class status of a scholar, and intellectual. You have to work and make money and, and trade.
1: Yeah, you you you're a step above the serfs, the farm, the peasants, uh, and, and so the social the socialist ideas were quite amenable to people who were used to thinking in terms of traditional Hindu social hierarchies. Because, yeah, of course, you know, I mean, businessmen or doing business or profiting or trading is definitely not something. To aspire, So I think the socialists kind of harness this aspect of uh, Indian social tradition, and that is the low status of businessmen.
0: So the idea that, especially of state socialism, the idea where you have a class of people making central planning decisions, e- e- like you can isolate that and talk about it as economic ideology, but you're saying it, it fused very nicely with the idea that we have a class in our in Indian society that makes decisions and is looked at as higher than other people. So, of course, these should be the central planning decision makers.
1: Yeah, uh, in, in uh, Indian, Indian social hierarchy or the Hindu social hierarchy, uh, the warriors or the ruling class, okay, are, are ranked higher than businessmen. The intellectuals, not in, the scholars are at the top, right? So, of course, now if you want to think about how shall we uh, go about promoting economic development, okay you are naturally inclined to give a higher position to the rulers to the intellectuals rather than let than, rather than rely on the initiative and enterprise of these lower ranked business people
0: and uh, and of course the, as we were saying both on the economic uh, area and in the cultural area there was a, a shift in attitude over time and again we'll get to that specifically in just a sec one thing you noted in your paper that i really liked was um, from right at the beginning, when you talked about social change, the impression I got was that you were saying that it, it, it's too easy just to point at one thing and account for a social change. It's, it's obviously multifaceted and complicated. And and one of the things you said that is is too easy for us to point at and leave it at that is to say that, well, people wanted to maximize their wealth and, and, and gain more riches. That's for the reason why there was social change. And that can count for, for, for social change and more economic liberalization. But again, in your paper, you say, that's not enough to drive a social preference that people want more money. There was something else going on in India that, that had people thinking about more at least or at most yearning for a form of liberalization. And
1: it wasn't just money. Yeah, I think that the culture has to sanction the maximizing of wealth before uh, before the maximizing of wealth takes place. I don't think, I mean, in economics, we believe that people automatically want to maximize their wealth and they'll just do, that's just the natural state of mankind. But uh, if you look around, that is not necessarily the case that people at all times in all cultures uh, give preference to maximizing wealth. And uh, in India, there was definitely, you know, uh, a, a, a prejudice against uh, the, the wealth motive uh, because uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it was kind of seen as engaging in kind of a lower caste activity. Uh, you know, the thing to aspire to to would be contemplation, which is what the intellectuals and the religious leaders do to be a philosopher, uh, to be a warrior, uh, not accumulating wealth. okay I mean to accumulating wealth, yeah, you need some amount of accumulation of wealth, but uh, that should not be the main purpose of the life, and businessmen were seen as associated with with doing that. Right and uh, and and material consumption was greatly de-emphasized uh, in the wider popular culture, and that is if you if you watch the movies from the fifties and the sixties, okay, uh, none of the heroes are seen as really very wealthy or trying to accumulate wealth. Uh, and that would be considered a very distasteful thing to do. That would be considered, uh, you know, yeah, not not a very seemly thing to do. And so you see the lives of even, uh, you know, the heroes to be very austere in the fifties and sixties. And you know, that's totally that 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 inhibition uh against uh uh, consumption is kind of shed starting in 80s and 90s and it's not just an evident in films you know a lot of other people have have made the same observation that uh austerity is no longer in style okay if you got it there you flaunt it and and now the indians have kind of gone to through the to the other end i mean if you look at the movies now the heroes live very ostentatious lives you know they have like palaces as homes and a fleet of cars and it's like and you know even to most americans that would seem like very vulgar consumption uh that's just i guess the pendulum swinging uh to at uh, the other end
0: let's let's shift gears right into bollywood specifically then because i think we've provided a great backdrop and conversation so far to understand this so before we get right into specific films and also your study on on, on bollywood films can you try and capture for for me and our listeners just how big bollywood is in india I, I think many in the west appreciate and understand the idea that it's a big genre but i'm not sure if they yeah. grasp how culturally integrated the films are with that part of the world. So maybe you could talk a bit, a bit about that.
1: Yeah, uh, um, a lot of people have known it, and not just me, sociologists, film studies, that films permeate people's lives in India much more than they do in any other society. But, uh, 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 you know, that's uh, in a poor country, that's like the cheapest form of entertainment. And, uh, and uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, and the film industry is very prolific. It produces over thousand films a year okay, compared to like 200 produced in hollywood and it's only second to hollywood in its economic might and uh, and uh, and its influence across the world uh most of bollywood films tend to be musicals and so most of the popular music in india is also like soundtracks of most of the films and uh, uh, and that is what a lot of indians bond over is their uh, is films and a lot of scholars have attributed films to uh, to uh, uh, to the formation of like a pan indian identity among them very diverse groups, so it 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 matters a whole lot uh, more than it does in a lot of other countries.
0: Right. Yeah, I, I was I was watching some interviews just over the past couple of months because I'm I am interested in in film. Uh, a lot of directors, like people like George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, Martin Scorsese, and Francis Ford Coppola. So Western directors seem to agree that films that sort of create cultural paradigms and tie people together in the West are sort of uh, not an every year or every couple years thing. Uh, You know, a lot of people know, for instance, the West, The Godfather, then of course, Star Wars and Star Trek as a show. These are like cultural phenomena, but it's not something that we can point to, I don't think, as a consistent thread that holds over time. But as I read more about Bollywood it seems like it's much more common that this idea of Bollywood is sort of a continuum as you were saying of films and culture that ties people together and creates common ground it's, it's a lot more solid than it is in the west again we can point to a couple of films here that bring people together and become cultural phenomena but it doesn't seem to be as consistent and as thick if you will as Bollywood is to people
1: in the eastern part of the world yeah uh, definitely there is uh There's a greater phenomenon of movie stars becoming politicians in India. Right. And so, uh, you know, they they even become cult leaders. You know, they have cult followings. They have people worshipping them. So films tend to permeate these other aspects of life a lot. That'd be an interesting study as well
0: to see how many Indian people become politicians in India as opposed to American people or Canadian people that become politicians and go on to extended careers based on the influence in the film industry. That's actually a really interesting point. So um, l- let's get into your analysis and, and the study you did in, in your paper. Um, it was called the Role, the Role of Ideological Change in India's Economic Liberalization. And of course, we'll put that in our episode notes on our page for people to click on and link to. But um, tell us how you set up the study and how your paper traced uh, changes and trends in Bollywood films over time.
1: So uh, there were two things I was looking at in my paper. Uh, one was, what is the vocation of the hero? Now, uh, in a lot of Bollywood films back in the old days, uh, there were simple morality tales in which the forces of good and evil lie against each other. And uh, there is a clearly identifiable hero. He's the good guy who's fighting the bad guys. And uh, there there are very few shades of gray uh, among characters, at least back then. And uh, so I I noted Uh, what the vocation of the hero is. So that was the first part. The second part was to identify any characters in the film, whether hero or not, that were businessmen. And to try and figure out if there were good guys among the good guys or among the bad guys. So so two parts of my analysis. One, what is the vocation of the hero? Two, if there are any businessmen, are they portrayed as good guys or bad guys? And what I found is that in the 50s and the 60s, right after independence, when Fabian socialism was uh, all, the, all, all the rage among, at least among the intellectuals, was that none of the heroes uh, were businessmen, okay? They were, uh, they were poets, they were philosophers, they were tour guides, they were even jailers, okay? Uh, but no businessmen. In the 80s and the 90s the heroes are overwhelmingly businessmen like 60 percent of the heroes in the films okay in the 80s and the 90s are businessmen it's a very startling difference Uh, similarly uh, uh, are the businessmen shown to be among the good guys or the bad guys in the 50s and the 60s the businessmen are inevitably the bad guys. Okay, they're shown like beating widows and orphans in order to pinch a few pennies out of them. Uh, if you in the 80s and the 90s, the businessmen are among the good guys. Okay, they they help the downtrodden. They uh, they are social activists. Okay, they they carry the they, they lead the march for gender equality. Okay, very startling difference, and that to me, tells a lot about how the culture uh, uh, evaluates uh, the morality of engaging in business. Uh, a lot of people have said that, oh, this this change merely reflects the corporate structure behind the studios. So more in the 50s and the 60s, most of the filmmakers were independent artists, while in the 80s and the 90s, films were made by Uh, corporate studios and of course the corporate studios want to make their class of people look good and therefore they're showing all the businessmen as good people. Uh, well, I I don't buy that explanation because in the U.S., okay, films have always been produced by profit-seeking corporate studios, and despite that, the messages that have been sent out by films in Hollywood have been consistently left-leaning. Okay, so I don't think that corporate interests determine the kind of messages that the films send out, so I don't think that's the explanation. Uh, My explanation is that the films are simply reflecting a social change Uh, that has been taking place in the Indian society. I'm not saying that films caused this change, okay? What caused this change is, uh, the jury is still out on that, okay? All I'm saying is that the films are reflecting the social change that has taken place in Indian society, and that social change has to be part of the story about what is going on in India, especially economically.
0: So as you said, it may not be the claim that these films are causing social change, but at the end of the day, it's still a very strong meter if you will or tracer of social change and, and you can see yeah. that very drastically in your study as you said yes definitely
1: and it, films might cause social change okay i mean i would be surprised if films are not causing any social change at all right and maybe there is a, a loop of feedback loop right films cause some change and then also reflect some change that's independently occurring in the society but i don't want to get in that debate the, my my main point is to show that there has been a change Okay, reflected in the films uh, that we need to take into account.
0: And I suppose it would also because you mentioned right there that some people say, well, now, you know, the the film industry has been taken over by corporations, and it's reflecting that values. Even if you were to grant that argument, I suppose you'd have to say that the independent artists and people that were making films in the 50s and 60s weren't. I guess businessmen, and they were reflecting their version of the world too. I mean, you have yeah, to be consistent yeah. on both sides if you buy that argument, I guess, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, an interesting thing is that uh, research that has been done on similar research that has been done on Hollywood films has shown shown that uh, uh, the kind of ideology that is portrayed in films, especially with related to economic issues, whether businessmen are good or bad, uh, has been consistently negative throughout time and if anything it has gotten even more negative so films have become more more anti-business uh and uh, you know and the, the corporate structure has not changed it's not that all of a sudden in hollywood you have more independent filmmakers making films it's still the corporate studios uh that that have presided over this change
0: yeah you know 100 you're right and and i guess as well and your paper mentions this too and because you, you tie it back in with cultural values again that it, although we can look at voca- vocational um I guess status of our he- of our heroes or non-heroes or anti-heroes or antagonists in these movies, um, it's not just a vocational discussion you were also talking about, uh, cultural values. So, um, and you were specifically talking about the paradigm of duty versus personal desires in your paper. Yes. That is to say that to, it seems that a, a lot of people use the businessman in, like, let's say, the 50s and 60s in Bollywood as a representation of personal desire, and, and like you said, trying to pinch a few pennies and and cr- crawl their way through the world and the social ladder. But on the other hand, uh, a village leader or a scholar would be portrayed as someone who had a sense of duty, and, and I guess yes. was sharing that knowledge with everybody. And you said that also seemed to, I, w- I don't want to say flip because things are gradual usually, but that also seemed to change and rotate over time.
1: Yeah. I mean, in, in, at least in the common imagination, the uh, the government uh, officials and the scholars are, are associated with uh, the greater good, the common good, right? The businessmen are greatly associated with uh, the private gain, right? And in a society where the great common good or the greater good is emphasized would definitely Consider uh, scholars and government officials to be of higher status than uh, than businessmen, and I think that has changed as well. And you can see that in the films. Like a recurring dilemma in Indian films is that uh, a character faces a, a, a choice between serving the common good or to satisfying their own individual desire, and the the the, the heroes inevitably. Uh, choose to satisfy not their own desire but the common good and you see that changing in the 80s and the 90s okay now increasingly you see that the heroes are are, are choosing to, to to uh to to pursue their own individual ambitions rather than simply the common good and as i noted in my paper a very common way of pursuing or the, the very common form of individual desire and ambition is uh, who to marry, okay, or falling in love. And and the heroes often face a conflict between, you know, marrying for the good of the community or the family or marrying for love, okay? And inevitably, now the heroes are rebelling against Uh, the the strictures of society that dictate that they marry this person or that person and you know kind of forging their own path romantically. I think that's that's an important change to take note of. I mean if you know if people want greater freedom in their personal life okay uh, how likely is it that they're not going to want greater freedom in their economic life? You can still relate that
0: back to the paradigm of of duty and personal desires right and I don't mean personal desire as in like frivolous you know pursuit of whatever it's just it's just what people in, on an individualist scale want versus what the duty could be to your family or your village or, or whatever the case may be and and as you said these are morality tales a lot of the time so it's not like we're talking about 1970s hollywood sometimes complex anti-hero characters at times we're, we're often talking about morality tales in bollywood so we we have a situation where the marriage or some, how someone looks at a marriage i guess could be looked at in such a way that it represents, again, that tension between the personal desires and the duty to other people beyond oneself.
1: Yeah, I mean, a, a great case is this film called Mother India that came out in the 1960s, which was all about, you know, as the name suggests, like serving the country, you know, uh, and uh, and in the film, the in this case, it was a heroine that had uh, that faced the problem that her son had brought shame to the village by kidnapping a village woman and uh you know she was asked to to kind of you know take an action to redeem the village and she chose to kill her son okay to protect to protect the 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 village from from shame and in the rest of the rest of the life she's shown to 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 regret you know killing her son she faces a lot of personal angst but you know the film still valorizes her as mother india like the mother who take care of the whole community rather than you know caring about what's good for her that kind of a moral resolution is hard to imagine in films today uh you know i, I can't i can't imagine people uh, being asked or or that kind of a personal sacrifice being validated in films today
0: Right. Yeah. And, and I think I w- if, I'm not sure if it was in your paper or another article where I read about your paper, but I think one of the lines in the movie is that this, this mother actually does say to another character, well, something along the lines of, I'm you know, I'm not just this person's mother. I'm the mother of the village. Right. And this is like an mm. epic, epic moment in the film that shows that like the duty is triumphing over, you know, personal family issues or personal desires. And I think that's actually a great place to take a break. So we're going to do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to the Curious Task. I'm speaking with Nimish Adia today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions and feedback to liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Danny Leroy, Darcy Giroux, and Elizabeth Aragona. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. today. I'm speaking with Nimish Adya. Uh, Nimish, b- before the break, um, and we we did pretty much run that point through, but I just want to put a finer point on it now that we're back here. Um, I, I think there was an article written by by, uh, by someone in the the Eastern Eye, and that they were they had read your study and summarized it, I think, quite nicely. And and they said that ultimately, what they learned and, and what became clear to them through the study was that quote, while characters of earlier films had attained heroism through sacrifice to the interests of the family, village or nation. Now the path to heroism lies in individual achievement. And again, I think it's really important to emphasize to our listeners that we're not talking about, you know, minor points of of wealth and success or or like small character studies where, you know, someone has a business and then, you know, and then they have enough food to feed their family. Good for them. We're actually talking, as you said, about strong morality tales like heroism. That's a strong word. So for for a businessman to go from being portrayed, as you said, to someone who's pinching pennies, beating widows and orphans, as you said, like serious business, to actually being the hero of a film, someone that could fight corruption and and fight for the greater good. That's a serious shift. Again, we're not just showing you could be successful through business through these films, but there's a form of heroism going on. I think that's very important.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think... uh... Uh, the shift also reflects a uh, greater understanding that pursuit of uh, individual achievement private gain need not be antisocial that it can have wider Redeeming benefits from the society, you know, the Adam Smith's whole idea that is this through pursuit of private gain that, you know We benefit society the invisible hand principle, so to speak, right? So I think I think uh, the, uh, Indians have come around to that invisible hand principle that uh individual achievement uh pursuit of private gain is not necessarily antisocial and can even be heroic and and you even mentioned in the paper there
0: was one film and I, and I forget which one it was but maybe as I'm talking about it you'll remember the title I should have noted it I regret it but but basically um business itself putting aside the hero for a sec doesn't become a central issue in the film like business does not corrupt people but sometimes ultimately it's portrayed as there's other meddlers outside of business that are trying to ruin it, basically, whether it's st- stealing the wealth of the businessman or co- corrupt officials trying to corrupt the businessman. It-, it becomes this idea that you doing business does not corrupt
1: you, but there's other people outside meddling with it that might do so. And that's actually a huge shift, too. Yeah. So corruption is not inherent in a business. Okay, that's that's the idea that's been, at least, uh, that's been communicated. Right. Whereas it used to be like if you were, I, I think
0: there was one film as well, where you said that there there was, I think this was a 60s one, I forget. So it was kind of in that middle period, 60s, early 70s, where yes, there was a businessman shown in the film, and he did get his material wealth success, but ultimately came at the sacrifice of everything else, family, um, and, and bodily health, all that kind of stuff. Whereas later on, it's not shown that going through the process of business is, go- is going to corrupt you. It's just other things might and there might be other temptations along the way.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, so so there's greater subtlety in uh, in uh, in the moral evaluation of business rather than business bad bad bad.
0: And another interesting point we did touch on it earlier was was the portrayal of wealth in general. Putting aside business for a second, I didn't want to dive into it earlier when you're talking about wealth and, and and the caste system and the class system because I wanted to save it for now. But but it's interesting because you did note in your paper as well that ultimately wealth was especially decades ago, culturally portrayed as something that you simply either had or didn't have, right? And that's the way life was. And as time went on, it not only was recognized as something that you can work to achieve, as we've been talking about, but... Um, that achieving that is is not a bad thing. Again, um, so so and and how I tie that back to the, the beginning of our conversation was you said that of course the, the scholars and the leaders, political leaders, were looked at as obviously higher class and more upper class as compared to the businessmen or even the untouchables and the serfs. Um, it's just interesting to me that um, of course the upper classes who already have wealth. Will look down on business and trying to make profit and and get your way up the social ladder, as a bad thing. Again, it's easy for them to do that. They already have the wealth. They already have the respect. They already have the power in society.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I think it was interesting uh, uh, that yeah, none of none of the wealthy people in the films in the fifties and the sixties, uh, it has uh, it, it was shown how they earned their wealth. It was just there. You know, they were just shown to be wealthy and you know, violating away their time smoking or, or, you know, womanizing, drinking, whatever. Uh, and uh, starting in the 70s, 80s, okay, you see people working for their wealth, okay? So that kind of reflects the idea that, you know, wealth is not just something of fixed pie, but that has to be created and the process of creation has been shown. And when you once you accept that, that wealth is simply you know, not just a manna from heaven, but something has to be created. And that also begins to change your moral evaluation of uh, of people engaging in that process. Yes.
0: And again, that would pose a threat to the the people who are solidly in an upper class, whether it's socialist society or, or not, because then you're opening the door to showing, again, as you said, that this isn't just something that we have or don't have, it's something you can actually work to attain. So I think that's very interesting that not not only do these films reflect um, the, the change over time of certain attitudes, but they also reflect what certain classes might have think of, think of as, a, as a threat or not to their own social status.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I guess if wealth can be created, then your status is not secure,
0: right? Exactly. Another interesting point about the way the films portray wealth is that we've already covered quite a lot about individual wealth or or families that have wealth and others that don't. But in terms of how the poor get ahead, I found that was another interesting part of of your work when you're writing about this. In in earlier films, um, you were saying that it's portrayed that the way the poor get ahead is simply through the generosity of those who have wealth, right? Those who have wealth help the poor get help those who don't get ahead. That's the way to attain, um, you know, maybe a, a bit of ease in your life. Or, or, or a, a way to get ahead in a small sense. That's how the poor can get ahead. But of course, as time went on, um, as you were saying, work and toiling and trying to move up and make your life easier is not portrayed as uh, is not only not portrayed as a bad thing, but it's also portrayed as something you can do. So I think that's a, a little bit different than the points we are previously discussing is that, again, there's this cultural idea being portrayed in the films very early on that you can work all you want in the mud uh, but, but you're not getting anywhere unless a
1: community leader, someone with wealth, helps you get ahead through their generosity. Yeah, in Mother India, the family ultimately, you know, uh, becomes prosperous or the village becomes prosperous when the government brings an irrigation project into town. A- and similarly, you know, uh, other, other ways people climbed out of poverty in the 50s and 60s is, you know, children, street children being adopted by wealthy families, for example.
0: Right. So this is not, it's not a rags to riches story of a, of, a, of a street child starting a business, selling some stuff and growing it. Of course, he has to be adopted by wealthy people. That's the only way this. Yeah, I
1: mean, uh, they don't say it explicitly, but the only way, the only instances of upward mobility, economic mobility portrayed are involved the generosity of the rich.
0: So so in everything we've been discussing, Namish, the interesting question does become, and you've touched on it a bit earlier, but I, I do want to drill down a little further. Uh, and I know it's hard for you to say directly, uh, but ultimately the question is, what came first? You know, is, is society influencing films or are films influencing society? That's the first part of the question. And you were talking how it's a bit of a feedback loop. And of course, how this ultimately ties into economic policy and changes, I think is interesting to ask you. So tell us a bit about that.
1: Uh, so how does it tie into economic changes? Well, I think uh, the kind of economic system India had in the post-independence era that involved a lot of uh, government economic planning, uh, that was viable as long as the culture support uh, the culture was supporting that system. And the way the culture supported that system was by giving greater social status to the government officials, to, to the intellectuals who had designed the program. Uh, it also it also gave support to that system by emphasizing collective duty right so the old economic system extracted a lot of sacrifices from people all around right they had to submit to uh, government dictates regarding what they could produce what they could consume the economic planning call, uh, called for uh industrialization where, where does the funding for industrialization come from Well, by forcing people to save a lot, which means people had to forgo consumption. They had to forgo their individual desires about how they wanted to spend their money on, right? So as long as people believe that uh, they had to make sacrifices for the common good, okay, they could could get behind that system. Uh, As long as they believe that uh, wealth-seeking is immoral and only businessmen engage in wealth-seeking, okay, it was... uh, it was easy for them to support a system that circumvented businessmen and you know kind of clipped their wings uh, so to speak uh but if you don't have those uh, culture in place okay if you have a culture in which people give greater primacy to their individual desires if you have a culture that does not uh think of uh pursuit of profit as inherently antisocial activity Okay, then governor government planners are going to have a hard time carrying out their plans. Okay, they're not going to be able to run the license raj with impunity. They're not going to be able to keep people from trading uh, internationally, uh, you know, because uh, they're going to get a lot of pushback. And so culture is very important in uh, supporting Or not supporting a particular kind of economic system. And so to me, the cultural change kind of uh, makes it not surprising that India moved towards a more market oriented uh economic system starting in the 80s and 90s right it's
0: the simple principle that if cu- even putting aside economics for a second culturally speaking if people uh start thinking to themselves well why can't I start a business the way I want why why can't I simply you know put one and two together uh to, to get to get the number three and, and start selling and helping my own town my own family out just through business and without getting a license if people start thinking these thoughts culturally and and you match that with the idea that you can do things for personal desire and, and not Always has to be driven by a greater sense of duty that must naturally eventually reflect an economic and and, and public policy.
1: Yeah, that is definitely, and you know, I, I, and that is uh, the importance of uh, a culture in supporting an, uh, a market economy. I think is underappreciated by both people on the left and people on the right. I mean. My critics, uh, you know, like people on the left say, "Oh, this all this neoliberalism has been imposed by the Chicago School people, you know, who have who have come up with these ivory tower ideas," and then. And then imposed it uh, on uh, on an unwilling population. I don't think that's that's really easy to carry out, and unless the culture supports it, uh, you know. I think uh, the kind of culture that uh, the U.S. has, for example, uh, could not but lead to a market-oriented system. And you know, you you, you start seeing that like once you start uh, moving away from like uh, if once you start putting restrictions on people's economic activities. Okay, that their cultural uh, sense of what is right, what is just, begins to kind of, uh, of kind of impede, right? And I see that around me all the time, right? Even people who are very left-leaning in terms of their economic policies, okay, when you start actually implementing, you know, uh, left-leaning economic policies that call upon them to make individual sacrifices for the common good. OK, you you start seeing, oh, well, that's that's too much of an imposition. How can you do that? Right. That's my freedom to do that. And, and it, it runs up against that.
0: And another aspect of culture, too. And I, I did leave this more towards the end because you mentioned in the paper and it didn't become the focus of the paper. But I think it's great that it was in it. Um, you said there is there is something to note about a gender issue in all in all of these discussions and people listening keenly might have noticed as well. You noted in your study that women are completely left out of it, and of course that's not because you didn't want them in there. It's simply because it wouldn't have helped your study in terms of tracing cultural change, because the women are rarely portrayed as having a vocation, let alone run a business. So they ultimately don't even become important characters in these films. Um, So why don't we talk a bit about that first, and then I can ask some follow-up questions, but that was a very interesting thing to note.
1: Uh, Yeah, there there weren't any uh, women businessmen, though there are now, in in recent decades, there are but up until the 2000, there weren't uh, any, in fact, uh, women business people. Uh, another reason, even if there were a, a good reason to leave them out is the model evaluation of women is tied up not so much in the vocation that they pursue, but other things such as the chastity and things like that. You know, So uh, there are a lot of uh, confounding factors that influence the model evaluation of women. In Indian context, and so uh, I, I would not want to say that uh, oh, this woman uh, has been portrayed as evil because she runs a business. Uh, because you know, there would be a lot more uh, that would affect how she was portrayed.
0: And as you said, in in recent uh, times, there are more uh, women business people. And I, again, we don't want to get into saying what came first, the chicken or the egg, the the culture, or the film, or or whatever. But I guess either way it's correlated with this idea of liberalization right uh, i'm sure that the films will start per- portraying even more successful uh, women who uh, who are again j- striving for personal desire rather than a sense of duty and as well of course that means in the society itself it's going to be more common to see more and more women uh, pursuing goals like that and in business yeah yeah
1: often uh the dilemmas that are confronted by uh, business women in indian films often tend to be centered around their personal lives like you know, should I should I take care of my children or should I, you know, expand my business further? And uh, and those kind of business, yeah and those kind of issues.
0: Right. It'd be interesting to, uh, even over the next couple of decades, see how that paradigm shifts and how their representation in film goes.
1: Yeah, yeah, very much so.
0: I did want to end on sort of a, a more personal note for you. I, I wanted you to talk a bit about uh, maybe pick one or two or even three Bollywood films that of note for you that either in general or that you encountered throughout this study and of course not just the good stuff maybe you could pick one good one that you personally like and then one that you look at and say well that's just discussing the way things are represented because obviously um, as a person who is interested in in economics and, and political thinking like yourself you're not just looking at these films as well that was a good movie you're also thinking of them in the context of the conversation we've had today and your study so Maybe you could pick one or two to tell us a little bit more about and why you either really like them or or really don't like
1: them. Yeah. uh, One film that uh, that you should watch if you're interested in these kind of issues is Guru, uh, which is loosely based on the life of a self-made industrialist in India. Uh, And I think Alex Tabarrok called it the, uh, the, the most important free market film ever made and it's an unabashed uh, uh defense of uh, of the free market system uh and uh and uh, uh, some of the clips that i am going to make available uh, drawn that uh, uh it's uh, yeah i i don't think there is any equivalent in uh in uh in, in Hollywood uh that comes to like a full-throated defend of the uh, defense of businessmen and uh and markets. Uh, unless you count the Atlas Shrugged remakes that have been made. Uh other than that I can't see any parallel elsewhere. Uh so guru is one to check out. Uh if you want to see films on the uh, on the other side of the ideological uh, spectrum. Of course there's Mother India. Uh, There is another movie uh, from which I've taken clips in my collage uh, called uh, Upkar, which means obligation. Uh, As the name suggests, you know, it's all about the obligations that individuals have towards their society. And, uh, you know, it it makes the opposite case that, I mean, uh, the film was made in the 60s in the middle of uh, a food crisis, okay? And so it tackles the issue of why is the country a uh, country facing a food crisis uh, even though it's like 80% of the population is engaged in agriculture right so that's kind of a paradox and the explanation that the film seems to convey is that is that the farmers are too greedy Okay, they only care about their own profit and, uh, and they don't care about the country as a whole and they ignore these great plans that our leaders have for ourselves, which, which actually involves the government confiscating most of the produce that the farmers were producing. And no wonder the farmers were resisting, but that is shown to be like a bad thing. And that's the reason that we're having a food crisis. So there's a lot of ideological content in, in that film. Yeah so these are uh, these are these are a few firms that you can catch.
0: So it can't be that the the state planners are, are botching the distribution. It has to be those farmers would farm better if they really cared about the central plans.
1: Yeah they they're not they're not uh, teeing up you know in accordance with the planners. Basically. Right.
0: Well, uh, Namish, it's been it's been a great chat. We have talked about a lot. At the end of every episode I like to make sure that the guest has the last word. Um so let's bring it full circle and put a point on our on our exploration of the question, a finer point if we can. So I ask every guest to round it up. So let me ask you, what do you hope are ultimately the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on whether Bollywood liberalized India. And I know we we went into a lot of nuance, but but if there's one thing you want to leave people with or a couple things you want to leave people with after our chat today, really, what is it?
1: I think uh, besides great entertainment, Bollywood films are a great reflection of what a a lot what is uh, going on in uh, Indian society. Uh, uh, Did they liberalize India? I certainly think that they did. Play a part uh, if there was any force that would uh liberalize india bollywood would be a great candidate mm-hmm. and uh, another thing i want viewers to take away is to uh to, is, is when you watch films think about these issues like mm-hmm. you know who is being portrayed as evil who's portrayed as being good uh what are the reasons that are being portrayed as uh, as why they are evil or good what kind of trade-offs are they facing uh, and what kind of choices are uh, are they making, and are those choices being uh, are portrayed as good? What are what are the sources of their problems that are shown? Okay. And to to think about these issues, and uh, I think you will come out uh, from watching movies with a much more fun experience if you did that.
0: Excellent. I think we'll leave it there. Nimish Adia, thank you very much for joining me on the Curious Task today.
1: Thanks, Alex. It was fun.
0: This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.